A is to articulate solutions. So once you know your goal, right, you know, the problem you're trying to solve for, you're straight away, you know, it's a creative field and we're going to have lots of options. You want to start articulating ways you can solve for the problem. This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers, and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets. Hello and welcome to Writers in Tech, a podcast that brought you by the UX Writing Hub, which is an online education platform for UX writers and content designers. I want to invite you to check our website. We have a weekly newsletter, a free UX writing course, a weekly blog post, and a lot of free content for all of you to enjoy. My name is Yuval Keshtecherem, and I'm the founder of the UX Writing Hub and the host of the Writers in Tech podcast. And today I have an amazing guest. She's the author of an upcoming book about the business of UX writing and a UX writing veteran in the UX writing community for many, many years now. Her name is Yael Ben-David, and I'm very excited to have her here. Yael, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Yuval. Thank you for being here. I'm very excited, to be honest. As am I. Awesome. So let's dive right into talking about your book. So first of all, this is such a needed book right now for the world, in my opinion, like the business of UX writing. How did you came up with the idea of writing this book? Yeah, I totally agree. I think this book was really born out of there being a void in the space. So if I back up, I would say that a few years ago when books were starting to really be a thing, before that there had always been practitioners and there had been blogs and other sort of scattered resources. But the real kind of UX writers library, I think, started coming together around 2019, I'd say, with Kinera Ifrach's Ultimate Guide to Microcopy, which really covered tactical practices, and Tori Padmajerski's Strategic Writing for UX, which went more into the strategic. And as a community, we started to kind of get organized and to codify some things like best practices that had consensus around them. And we were at a place where we had this sort of common baseline and were able to start deep diving into more specialized areas. And that meant the whole world of conversation design, chatbots and voice apps were getting attention, like specialized attention for the first time accessibility and inclusivity was getting a lot of specialized attention, research and forums for discussion. And I just kind of noticed a couple years ago that this whole like sort of the business side of what we do, it was a big part of my everyday and it was kind of missing from the literature. So I decided to pitch like some talks about it. And I spoke about it in a few different forums at first in a sort of 20 minute format, then a 40 minute talk, then a two hour masterclass on O'Reilly's online learning platform. And there just became like more and more interest in deep diving into this sort of specialized area of the field until I had, you know, enough to say to fill a book. So, so I wrote it. That's awesome. Do you think that there is a connection to the fact that you work in a fintech company, which is obviously closer to the business sides of things? It definitely could be, but I think that the principles in the book and the frameworks are all totally relevant to any vertical. Like I, it's one of the cool things about being a UX writer or even being, you know, a product manager or a product designer is that you're not 
sort of stuck in a certain vertical. So I would think that these are being connected to what is the return on investment for our contributions, where we need to invest in UX writing and what we can get out, like why it's to the business's benefit as well as the users. They really apply no matter what industry or vertical or field you're, because wherever we are, as long as we're, you know, in-house and working for a business, we're always going to be able to lean into the kind of metrics I talk about in the book. I don't want to say prove our worth, but to showcase our impact. How about I put it that way? That's awesome. A lot of content we've created in the past, the UX Writing Hub was kind of like education for companies for, hey, you should have UX writers and this is why it's good for you. And to be honest, the business aspect obviously is so difficult to measure. You have companies here in Israel that build like huge teams of UX writers and you have, I wouldn't say names, but you have like a very big SaaS companies here in Israel that have so many UX writers in their team. But on the contrary, you have other SaaS companies in Israel or around the world that don't have a single UX writer. So there is still much work to do when it comes to doing that education. And I feel like that's great that like you have this book right now and we could just pass it to those companies to prove the value for hiring a UX writer. But my question for you would be, how can you measure the success of hiring a UX writer? Or let's step back. How can you measure the UX writing as a successful thing for a business? I think there are a lot of ways. I would break it up into quantitative measurement and qualitative measurement. Quantitative, that's kind of the most obvious. It's what people think of right off the bat. If they've had any exposure to the field at all, people, the first thing that will come to mind, let's say, will be A-B testing. They'll point to examples like Google had a hotel widget, right? They changed the copy for like by two words, instead of asking people to book a room at the very early stage and the very first stage in the flow, they changed it to browse availability or something like that, which felt much less committal mm -hmm. and immediately increased conversion by 17%. So, you know, that's a very kind of clean way, but to measure impact of UX writing and say, wow, whatever they cost to hire that UX writer, it was totally worth it because here's, you know, kind of an expensive e-commerce flow that a couple of little words, which were very cheap for the development team to implement, really had a positive impact on revenue and on the business goals. But it's not always going to be so cut and dry. You're not always going to have the resources to test those kinds of things. And it doesn't mean we don't have an impact. And even when you can measure quantitatively, I would advocate to always complement that research with qualitative. So meaning quantitative will tell you what happened, but it won't tell you why. So they know that 17% more users were clicking or were purchasing or whatever it is that they were measuring there, but they don't know why. And in their case, maybe you don't need to know why. But in my case, for example, when I was working at Fundbox at a fintech company that offered credit to small business or access to credit to small businesses, we also had a flow where it was a bar, basically a transaction that users needed to choose an amount of funds to draw from their credit line and complete the flow to draw the funds. And it was in their and our best interest. That's another big thing, a theme throughout the book we can talk about separately is how user interest and business interest should not be seen as at odds and one coming at the expense of the other, but 
I digress. So it was in both the users and the business's best interest for them to be able to complete the flow and draw the funds and have the funds sent to their bank account. So we did a lot of work similar to the type of work in the Google example of how can we change the copy on this button or the title on this screen to help them click through the flow. But it wasn't enough to know what they were doing. Were they clicking or not clicking with by, you know, doing A-B testing and other quantitative metrics like that? We had to know why. Because if, for example, the reason that our metrics look improved per se is because we'd reduced the friction so dramatically that they were clicking through without reading the fine print, let's say, that we do want them to read and be aware of. Then, And then they're calling support, right? Because now that they've realized they've made a mistake and they want the transaction manually reversed, we really haven't hit our goals. So how do we measure our impact? I would really beg of every UX writer to come at it from both a quantitative and qualitative mixed methodology approach. And even way, way before that, I think the most important thing is to start by really knowing your goals. So in the book, I have a framework called Kapow. And the K, the very beginning of the sort of playbook of UX writing for ROI, for return on investment, is the K is for know your goals. Because before you can even ask me about measuring whether you've achieved goals, you need to know that you have that North Star and you have those goals you're heading, you're aiming for. And I'm talking like big goals, like business goals. And it's really important, I think, for UX writer to know not just what they're doing in the UX department, what are they doing in the product department, but what are the execs talking about? What are they presenting to the board? I mean, if you can, the more information you can get, the better, the more context you can get, the better. What are you really trying to achieve at the end of the day? And is the work that you're doing and the copy that you're writing getting you there? I think a lot of times UX writers don't see that as their place. And I think it's unfortunate because I think if we do have more business context, we can use our specific skill set to improve the bigger picture in a way that we wouldn't if we didn't have that context. Right. To move the needle and to like a lot of time content design and UX writing, the solution is completely different than if you have the bigger picture, basically. Oh, yeah. And even on a smaller scale, even if you're not talking about big business goals, it reminds me actually this conversation of a iterative cycle I had with a product manager who was talking about needing a title on a certain screen and content structure and hierarchy wise and content design wise, I did not want to put a title there. And basically the conversation was going in circles. Yes, we need to write one. No, we don't. Yes, we do. No, we don't. And the way we solved this, I basically said to her, hold on. Let's not talk about the solution, right? Whether there's a title and what the title says, that's a solution. What is the problem you're trying to solve for? What's the actual goal that we're trying to accomplish with this copy? And by asking more questions and asking more questions and asking more questions, I was able to figure out what she really needed wasn't a title. She was trying to achieve like more emphasis on a certain concept. The details don't matter. But basically, once I understood the problem, I was able to propose a solution that we were all comfortable with and that we felt would work and then later measure did work. So I really think, you know, how do we measure our impact? Part of it is going to be a big part of it is dependent on knowing what is the impact we're trying to have. And it's kind of sounds obvious when you say it like that. But I think day to day, 
writers are still being asked to fill in the words for a prescribed solution when if they had more context around the problem and around the real core goals, they would be coming up with more impactful solutions themselves. You know, I agree. It's so interesting to see like the approach of different companies these days. So the other day, this company reached out to us, which is one of the biggest companies in Israel. We had that in UX design, like my background is in UX design, where people are like, okay, just, you know, do these five screens and that's about it. And then, you know, let's prove a case and then move to the bigger stuff. And now they did it like, they said, okay, let's do like nine screens, UX writing for these nine screens. And then I just started asking more and more questions like, wait, who are the users? What exactly are we tackling here? What is the bigger picture? And even they didn't let me to ask those questions almost, which was weird. And so sometimes you don't even have like a buy-in from companies that are extremely legit for your UX writing process, even if you're like a UX writing expert. Yeah, I think a lot of times that comes it our knee-jerk reaction as people who do understand what we do can be almost to be offended or you know frustrated (laughs) yeah yeah but i really i think it's an important principle in you know the workplace in general to assume good intent and i would try to shift that i mean we're all human and that's a natural knee-jerk reaction but i would try to then quickly shift into well, it's coming, it's not coming from a place of like wanting to work against us. Why have they hired us just to work against us? I think it's coming from a place of of lack of education and not yet really understanding what we can contribute beyond what they're asking us to contribute. And that's fair because, you know, they don't do what we do all day, every day. And why should they know? So it reminds me of, I heard this, something really talk by Greta one year at a big conference. I think it was Confab actually. And she was talking about how to handle more sort of strategically and effectively and peacefully the whole, we need a seat at the table conversation. And she had this like one nugget of wisdom that I've been thinking about in the years since, which is you just come and say, you don't say, bring me in earlier and pound on the table. Bring me in earlier. I can give you more. Bring me in earlier. You can give me more. You position it calmly as if you bring me in late or if this is what you give me as far as times, time and flexibility and resources, here's what I can give you back. And if you give me more time, flexibility, resources, whatever it is, if you bring me in earlier, here's what I'll be able to deliver. And, you know, you just make it a very unemotional, you have two ways that you can help me help you. And it's up to you, the potential you'd like me to fulfill on your behalf. So I think when you have an experience, like it sounds like you just had, it's coming from a place of them simply not understanding, like, why should I indulge you answering these questions? Because they don't get it, like what you're going to turn around and do with that information. So It sounds like a really nuanced shift in the conversation, but if you can shift it from here's what I need, here's what I need, here's what I need, and you're getting back like, well, too bad. We don't want to provide it or we can't provide it or we don't understand why you even want us to provide it. You're a nuisance. If you can shift that from, hey, I had these questions. If I had the answers, here's what I would do with them. Without the answers, here's what I can provide. It has a lot less impact and value, but it's what I can do with what I've got. And that might get through a little more, you know, like it's less judgmental and it's less kind of 
almost patronizing. It's less like I know all about what I do and you don't. And it's more kind of like, look, the choice is yours. You're the client, you're paying. Do you want more bang for your buck? All you need to do is answer a few questions. And I think it's harder to say no to that. I agree. I think it's, to be honest, it's still an ongoing discussion with them. So I think you gave a few ideas to steer that conversation to a more positive place because they don't want to give us the time to do research and they don't even understand what the research is all about. And now I feel like I can take it to a better place. So I think it was a very good tip. And Greta always giving great nuggets. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> That's cool. Would you mind if we explore the Kapow framework a bit more? Yeah. So case for knowing your goals, like the North Star, what would be the next, uh, the next letter stands for? A is to articulate solutions. So once you know your goal, right, you know the problem you're trying to solve for, you're straight away, you know, it's a creative field and we're going to have lots of options. You want to start articulating ways you can solve for the problem. And then after that, the P is to prioritize them. So I can't really sum it up in half a podcast, but... Part of prioritizing them is looking at all your different limitations. For example, do you want to prioritize a solution that's really cheap and fast to implement? Or do you want to prioritize a solution that you think has even bigger potential to succeed? There are many factors that go into how you shortlist the solutions you articulated previously. You even have to decide which project you're going to prioritize. So know your goals. Goals is plural. So let's say you have three goals, you articulate solutions for all of them, and now you have to prioritize not just the list of solutions for each goal, but also often you'll have to choose which goal to try to work on first or second. We often can't work on everything at the same time. So first you want to know your goals, articulate different ways to solve them, and then prioritize whether that's, you know, your solutions for each goal or the, or which goal to solve for at all. And then the O is own your metrics. And this one I think is probably for me the most important. It's, I think, the biggest contribution that the framework brings to the current thought and conversation around a UX writer's role. I think a lot of UX writers are almost, you know, afraid of metrics in the sense that they're like, oh, I'm not a math person, I'm a words person. And I'm definitely not suggesting in the book that we suddenly become data analysts. I think data analysts should be data analysts and UX writers should be UX writers, which is why it's not like M for measure, it's O for own your metrics. So by that, I mean, first of all, really being involved in the conversations about with the product manager about what we're measuring and with the engineer about how we're measuring and with the data analyst about, you know, what their process is not to drive it, but to be involved and to bring the user perspective. I think the UX perspective, for example, that we could uniquely bring would be whether the data that we're collecting is an appropriate proxy for measuring success of our goals. So a really easy example is if it turns out that you're measuring open rate for an email. But what you were trying to learn was the effectiveness of the content in the email. Open rate will only tell you the effectiveness of the subject line, essentially. It won't tell you anything about the content you're testing inside of the email. And if it's a transactional email, then, you know, the UX writer, the product writer is the one writing it. And the UX writer might be the only person to raise that. 
So as far as the product manager is concerned, they have a metric that they're collecting. And as far as the engineer is concerned, they've implemented the data collection in the back end and it's happening. And as far as the data analyst is concerned, you know, he's processing or she's processing the data and coming up with statistically significant insights. But it might be up to the UXer to come and say, wait, that's not actually the goal. That's not that particular piece of copy is not what's going to give me insight into the impact of the overall project, etc. So I really would ask the UX writer to take ownership over liaising between the different interdisciplinary collaboration around providing those metrics. Also to get creative You know, sometimes you'll be told, well, we can't measure that. We don't have the bandwidth to implement data collection for what you're asking to measure, in which case you can come back and say, okay, well, what sort of -of out-of-the-box measurements can I use? What are we already measuring anyway? And is there some way I can leverage those for my project? You know, no one else is going to provide that for you. Somebody might say, no, we can't implement what you're asking, but they're not necessarily going to come back with, however, maybe we can look into this other data point we're collecting for a different project and get insights that way. You can also be the one to come and say, all right, it looks like I'm not going to get support for quantitative metrics. What kind of qualitative metrics can I pull off on my own? So I had a project where I was working on some input fields and we were changing the labels, the placeholders and the validation errors to basically explain to users that they could not free type like they were it was it looked like a free text field but as you started typing there was a google api integration that would give you addresses and you had to select from the drop down and users didn't realize they had to select from the drop down so they would type in their address and even if character for character what they typed in matched one of the options in the drop down it wouldn't work if they didn't actually click on the drop down so we worked with on the placeholders and labels and the validation errors to re- explain you really need to click on an option in the drop down and there wasn't just there wasn't any way for us to measure the success or the failure with quantitative data. Neither existing metrics or new metrics, it just wasn't going to happen. And so as the owner of the metrics, it was up to me to then say, okay, well, what data can I collect? And we ended up working with the user-facing teams, also called frontline teams, sales and support, the ones who speak to the users all day, every day, and try to get you know, some qualitative feedback from them. Are they getting fewer tickets about getting stuck in this flow based on the copy? And then the W at the end is right. So yeah, I think that surprises a lot of people that at the very end of the process, you finally get to the writing the words. Obviously, until this point, you've already written things. You've written solutions you've articulated. You've written lists during your prioritization phase. It's not that you haven't written anything, but you only then really fine tune the strings to put in production after all those other steps. So obviously that was kind of high level, but that's the idea of the framework. That was amazing, to be honest. I think it's a fantastic framework. Thanks. <laughs> I can't wait to get the book. I saw that it's on pre-sale. Is it already available for people to get it? Yes. Yeah, so November 16th, it was available for pre-order and December 6th, it launches. And what was also super cool was that what happens is if you pre-order, then it'll ship 
at launch, unless it happens to be printed early. And that's what happened. So I actually found out people are already receiving it, even though it hasn't launched yet, which is super cool. I saw on LinkedIn, someone posting a, a picture of the copy they'd already received. My mom got the copy she'd ordered. So that that's really fun to see. But yeah, they're already out there. They're already shipping. Did you get your copy? Oh yeah, <laughs> uh -huh. I did. I got, I took a selfie with my copy. Um, that was very cool. I showed it to my kids. My kids, it's dedicated to my kids. So they found their own names on the first page and my seven-year-old goes, I'm famous. That was really cute. That's awesome. Now that uh, more UX writers and more companies will be aware to the business side of UX writing. So what do you think... Uh, is next for UX writers when it comes to education. So what else should we work on and build to educate our community and the companies that we work with? I talked before about how we're at this place in the field where we're able to specialize. And I really think that's the direction that UX writing as a practice is going to take. So I think it's almost this privilege that we didn't have before. There was so much misunderstanding. There was so much disorganization. There was so much really early discovery and introspection. We were a bit of a mess and everything was new and that's fine. That's how it is at the beginning. It's not a judgment. It's just a, an observation. And now we kind of have this baseline we're all working with and there's space for specialization, which I think is very cool. So I think it's going to be at this point where UX writers can decide, okay, I want to deep dive into, like I got down the best practices. I know about clear, concise and helpful. I know about, you know, the strategic perspective of content design systems. And I know about optimizing my workflow with my dev and product teams. And I've got all the general stuff together. And now I want to specialize. I want to deep dive in, you know, conversation design specifically or in there, there's actually a newish role called accessibility expert, people who don't just implement accessibility best practices in their UX writing, but they are actually the in-house consultant on all things accessibility, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. So I think, and like my kind of thing I've been deep diving on is looking at the relationship between the business and the UX writing. So I think that that's, that's where education is going to go next. I think we're going to see more specific programs, more specific courses that allow kind of almost advanced, like we couldn't have advanced courses, all the courses and boot camps and like everything else out there. I teach a course in university and in a college. It was all very kind of 101 because nobody had that baseline and everyone needed it. And now there's a, enough of a community that have the baseline that there's now a demand for more advanced material. And I think advanced comes hand in hand with specialized. So I think that's where I expect the education and also career paths to go. I think there'll be one career path, one sort of specialization, which is people management. And I think that there's going to be a lot more opportunities opening up for individual contributor, senior, specialized UX writers and content designers. Definitely. I agree with you. Like many... You know, I remember like five years ago I, when I was talking about UX writing, people were actually telling me, oh, that's not never going to be a thing. It's like a niche. UX is already a niche. So UX writing, are you kidding me? You're like delusional. But, you know, education, community, we keep building it. We keep building this practice. 
And I agree with you. Yeah, more specifications, more specializations in that kind of stuff, accessibility, localization. I see all, already like all kinds of interesting trends going on. And I agree with you. That's awesome. Okay, so we're getting into two last questions. So the one question that I want to ask you before we'll finish would be, What's your take on what's happening right now in tech? So there is some kind of a recession going on, a lot of layoffs in few companies. Some companies are still hiring like crazy. Everything is a bit weird right now. It's not 2021 where, you know, everybody was hiring, everybody was raising money, every business was like in a good role. Now something is a bit different. What kind of impact do you think it will have on UX writers, if any? I don't think that the impact on New York writers will be unique from the impact on a lot of the people we're used to collaborating with, our partners in other departments. And I also, I think that, listen, it's terrible. Over 100,000 people, very, you know, talented, experienced people who have a lot to contribute have lost their jobs. So in a very short span of time, and it's painful. I think it's also natural for the, I mean, I'm no economist, but I think that the markets go up and down and I don't see this as like the ending of an era. I see this as a dip. And I think if we, you know, zoom out and step back, we'll realize that the, you know, this will, it will recover. Those people will be reabsorbed into the market. They're not going to be jobless forever. And it's really hard. People have bills to pay. People have visas to maintain and the pain is real. And I would never belittle that. I also think that it's temporary and that it's natural and that, you know, if we can just take a deep breath and be patient, I think we'll get through this. I know we'll get through this. I was also at a company that laid off half, half, which is very dramatic. And that's, that's a very, very difficult place to be. But it'll take a bit of time. I think everything will recover. And I don't see any reason for UX writers to be affected any differently than all of the other departments that are being affected by it. I think also that there could be a lot of opportunity if you really think about it, like in every dip or every market that is crashing, like in the 2000s and in 2008, a lot of really interesting companies and technology practices grow from this type of crashes. Yeah, sure. And they go like higher than the, than the deepest deep took them. So they grow better than how it was like before the actual dip. Yeah. yeah, I think adversity is definitely an, a very powerful catalyst for creativity. Definitely. I like that. Getting into the last question, which is the question that I ask every guest on this podcast, and that would be, yeah, how do you think we should name this episode? I call it the business of UX writing. I think it's perfect name. And thank you so much. Yeah, it was a pleasure to have you here today. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much, Yuval. That's awesome. So thank you, El, and thank you, everyone, for sticking all the way to the end of this episode. We appreciate you and the fact that you took the time to listen to us today. My name is Yuval Keshdecher. I'm the founder of the UX Writing Hub. I would love to invite you to check our website. We have a weekly newsletter, a weekly blog post. We post also podcasts on a regular basis and create a lot of content for free for UX writers, content designers, people that want to get into the field and people that already work in the field. That's about it. I'll see you next time. Bye.